This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think there's a real problem in not enough regulation of working hours, that work intensification has increased, inequalities have increased, so for some people there's unemployment, but for many others there's high-stress work environment. I think it's a real problem, and the continuing strength and the respectability of trade unions in the Nordic countries has helped keep boundaries around working life. The weekend seems to be more recognisably a weekend in the Nordic countries, which is sort of like how it used to be in Australia 30 years ago. But now it's sort of like you just keep working. And um, technology is part of the reason for that, of course, emails and so on. But there seems to be more of retention of boundaries around a reasonable working life with time for family, with time for leisure and recreation and so on, which uh, I think other countries will, in fact, be more productive if they have that. Do we need to turn our gaze to the northern states to learn how to live better societies and to create a better work-life balance? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. On this week's show, Dr Andrew Scott highlights the dark side of neocapitalism, as argued in his superb new book, Northern Lights, the positive policy example of Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Norway. And is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness a racist text? Dr Ida Corley from NUI Minute and Professor Cedric Watts from the University of Sussex talk to me about one of the most haunting novels of the late 19th century. This is a show about imperialism and slavery, leadership and vision, social equality, sovereign wealth and social well-being. But first, the horror, the horror, a journey into the heart of Africa in search of the mysterious Mr. Kurtz. The mind of man is capable of anything because everything is in it, all the past as well as all the future. The legendary words of Charles Marlowe from Joseph Conrad's masterpiece, Heart of Darkness. Few works have entertained, shocked and troubled minds as much as Conrad's Heart of Darkness. This deeply psychological novel, set in the Belgian Congo, has inspired generations of poets, musicians and filmmakers, and also has aroused intense literary critical debate since its publication in 1899. But was Joseph Conrad a bloody racist? as charged by Nigerian writer Shinwa Shebe. Or is this text the ultimate anti-imperialist novel and as such should be read within its Victorian historical context, where colonial violence, slavery, cruelty, exploitation and corruption were commonplace? Well, to answer these complex and challenging questions, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr Cedric Watts, retired professor of English at the University of Sussex, who incidentally, like Joseph Conrad, had a career at sea before he went into academia. And also joining me was Dr Ida Corley, an expert in post-colonial literatures and a lecturer in the Department of English at NUI Minute. I started off by asking Cedric, is it fair to describe Heart of Darkness as one remarkably intoxicating read? Yes, it can be regarded as that. It, it's very complex. 
it does draw you in. And it's meant to be read, I think, at least twice, because there are ironies that cannot be perceived at a first reading. It also draws in by means of various techniques that Conrad uses. One is the technique of delayed decoding. Another is the related technique of covert plotting. For example, it's not until the second or third reading that most of us realize there's a covert murder plot whereby the manager of the company is scheming to destroy Kurtz, his rival for promotion, by delaying his relief as long as possible. This succeeds and Kurtz a dying man by the time relief comes. And there's a second covert plot near the end of the story where Conrad told Meldrum, Blackwood's assistant, that there was just a shadow of love interest in the end of the tale. And it's not until you study the text very carefully, you realize, yes, there's something in this because Marlowe is actually attracted to Kurtz's fiancé, Kurtz intended, and in better circumstances, he might have made more of the situation. Long afterwards, in Conrad's novel, Chance, we discover that Marlowe is now a crusty old bachelor who tells a young seaman friend of his to pursue his courtship of a widow who is in mourning, and Marlowe tries to be a matchmaker, and he's a successful one. He prevents this woman from being tied in mourning to the memory of her loved husband, he's able to persuade this woman to turn to look with fresh eyes at her young suitor. And we're told at the end that marriage bells impend. So he realizes that the story of Heart of Darkness is not really completed until we read Chance, a novel that appeared in 1914. So there are various ways in which this novel can draw us in and hypnotize us. One way is this, that Conrad uses techniques which oblige repeated readings and extensive readings into the context. And Cedric, it's a short enough novel at 38,000 words, but boy does it convey mood and emotion, doesn't it? Oh, good heavens, it's a richer Christmas pudding and slightly indigestible too, like a Christmas pudding. Oh, it, it's, it's a great mixture. It's partly autobiography, because it's based largely on Conrad's memories of his journey through the Congo in 1890. It's partly a quest novel, a novel of a quest for some discovery, some knowledge, some treasure. It's partly a satiric work. It's partly an absurdist work, because often we have scenes which treat us the absurdities of colonialism or imperialism in Africa. So it's, it's a very rich mixture, very fascinating, and I'm amazed by Conrad's linguistic command, because as you said, he's writing not in his first language, Polish, not in his second French, but in his third, English. He's not playing it safe. He's using English, which is now colloquial and idiomatic. Now it's lyrical. Now it's philosophical. Now it's richly descriptive. His vocabulary is amazing. When I'm reading Heart of Darkness, from time to time, I'm going to the dictionary because his English range is wider than mine. I think it's a phenomenal achievement, and I think people who criticise the tale should, to be fair to Conrad, criticise it in Polish, just to be fair to the fact that he was writing in English. Now, Ida, the novel certainly explores the evils and cruelties and violence associated with imperialism, but its representation of Africa is not very good. I think one of the things we need to point out to listeners is that the the story that we hear, the, the large tale that was told by the narrator, is actually a story that is passed from one narrator to another. The actual narrator of the story is unnamed and meets this character, Marlowe, at the beginning on the Thames River. So even the story we read, it's not dictated to us as an eyewitness account. It's a story heard f- from somebody else. It's the story that is the, itself the effect of a prior story. So this is one of Conrad's ways of telling us that Heart of Darkness, what
what he's trying to write about. It's not simply a story about Africa, a story about Africans, but it's a story about the stories that Europeans tell about Africans. So one of Conrad's concerns is the ways in which Africans are depicted by Europeans. And if we were to look closely at the text, then we can see a lot of ugly language. It's hard to deny that. One of the first sightings, let's say, of uh, by the narrator of, of African people is when they stop at trading posts, Grand Bassam or Little Popo, present day Ivory Coast or Benin. And he says things like, you know, now and then I saw a boat. You could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. They had faces like grotesque masks, things like that, drawing attention to the whites of the eyes, right? The blank part of the eye, the part of the eye that, that doesn't have a personality that is uninscribed. And the language um, continues like that. You know, he talks about the strings of dusty niggers with splay feet, right? This is, sounds like objects or toys, not actual people. One of the things is that Conrad's depictions, as, as Cedric pointed out, are based in part on his own journeys in the Congo. And what the narrator doesn't fully explain is that at the time that this invasion of the interior of the continent was being conducted by European explorers and entrepreneurs, there was huge disruption to social and economic systems there. There was forced labour, portage, people were taken hostage. Leopold II of Belgium, who claimed that territory as his own private colony, right, it was the only colony that was for one man, not for a country. He deployed armies. Uh, He set up an army called the Force Publique, misleadingly named the, the public force. It's actually a private force to enforce rubber quotas and so on. And this involved the breakdown of microsystems in the Congo, long established sort of traditional ways of living. Um, And it also broke down sanitary barriers between villages that had previously been separated by long distances. Suddenly you have people moving and a lot of upheaval and a lot of change, a lot of travel. And uh, that led to the spread of this disease, a kind of sleeping sickness, trypanosomiasis, um, that's transmitted by the Tsetse fly. And so a lot of the descriptions are really of people who are, are very seriously ill. But we don't fully understand that maybe when we're reading the text. We, we see things like, we see people dying slowly. They're not enemies, they're not criminals, they're nothing earthly now, nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation lying confusedly in the greenish gloom. We don't understand that that disease is not something inherent that is just part of Africa. We, we don't understand that, that that epidemic has been created by the activities of Europeans in the territory. So those are the kind of perspectives that we don't always get. We don't get that analysis we don't get that kind of alternative perspective in a kind of straight up way, right? As Sidrick said, there, there is a, a critique of the behaviour of, of people. But the concern, I suppose, of people who have raised questions about the literary value of this novel is whether or not Conrad was interested in self-government in Africa or whether he was interested instead in the reform of colonial projects. Was he concerned more about the ways in which Europeans seem to become morally affected by this environment and become a little deranged, behave in deranged and brutal ways because of their exposure to a different place and a different climate? Or, or did he actually think about Africans as as equals? Uh, could I take up that matter of the quotation that you raised uh, earlier? quotation describing the black fellows who are paddling a boat through the surf on the coast. Uh, the boat 
from the shore gave one a momentary contact with reality. It was paddled by blackfellows. You could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. They shouted, sang, their bodies streamed with perspiration. They had faces like grotesque masks, these chaps, but they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement that was as natural and true as the surf along their coast. They wanted no excuse for being there, and they are contrasted with a French man-of-war which absurdly is shelling a continent. And Conrad says there was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drollery in the sight. And those, those fellows who are paddling their boat through the coast, they represent something by which we can measure the degradation inflicted on the blacks by the colonialists. These chaps who've not been trapped by the colonialists have energy and vitality. They want no excuse for being there. Later on, we're seeing degraded specimens of the black. They've been degraded by their contact with the colonialists. Don't forget that Conrad, from the age of four, knew he was the victim of racism and colonialism. Uh, Conrad was born into a polar that had vanished from the map of Europe because it had been annexed by three great powers, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, and Conrad had the misfortune to be brought up in the Russian part, which was the most brutally controlled part. And Conrad's parents, loyal Polish patriots, conspired against the Russian overlords. They were arrested, found guilty of subversive activities, and sent into exile in the far-off province of Vologda. And the four-year-old Conrad accompanied them on the dreary trek into exile. So from the age of four, Conrad knew what imperialism was about. And uh, that's why in his later writings, he was markedly anti-imperialistic and often, not always, but often anti-racist too. And don't forget that... Uh, Various African writers, Lewis and Kosi and Matthew Buyu and Agugi Wathiongo, have praised Heart of Darkness as an anti-imperialist text. Indeed, Ngugi Wathiongo says that we have in Heart of Darkness, I quote, the most powerful indictment of colonialism, unquote. It should also be said that Conrad and Heart of Darkness helped to save lives and bring about the end of the brutal treatment of blacks in Leopold's Belgian Congo, the Congo Free State it was then called, uh, because E.D. Morell and Roger Casement read and admired Heart of Darkness. Uh, Casement was in charge by the British government with the task of surveying the state of affairs in the Congo, and he produced a report which was published in 1904 outlining the appalling government of the Congo, the ways in which uh, laborers were treated as slaves, brutalities were inflicted, and indeed human hands were cut off if the blacks had not produced a sufficient quota of rubber. This caused an outcry, and Casement and E.D. Morell formed the Congo Reform Association to orchestrate a campaign against Leopold and the, his administration of the Congo. And Conrad was consulted by Casement when Casement was about to publish his report, and Conrad provided for the Reform Association a denunciation of the regime in the Congo, which was duly quoted by Morell in his book, King Leopold's Rule in Africa. And it was quoted again by a reviewer in the London Morning Post, who said that Conrad's denunciation came with particular force because Conrad had lived and worked in the Congo. And Conrad's denunciation said in part, I quote, it's an extraordinary thing that the conscience of Europe, which 70 years ago has put down the slave trade on humanitarian grounds, tolerates the Congo state today. It's as if the moral clock has been put back many hours. There exists in Africa a Congo state where ruthless, systematic cruelty towards the blacks is the basis of administration. That's what Conrad wrote to be used by Morel and the Congo Reform Association. That association achieved its aims. It... Uh, reduced the brutalities in the Congo, the slave labor ended, 
and the Congo ceased to be the private property of Leopold and came under the control of the Belgian government. And E.D. Morel, at the end of the campaign, said that uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness was the most powerful thing ever written on the subject, the subject being the sufferings of blacks in the Congo Free State. And an American scholar, Hunt Hawkins, has said, we cannot know how many people Conrad's Congo fiction informed and moved to indignation, but we at least know that Conrad's work provided solid inspiration to the reformers. So I think it's fair to say that Conrad and Heart of Darkness helped to save lives and bring about an end to many brutalities in the Congo Free State. Now, Cedric... Heart of Darkness to me is a deeply psychological novel. It exposes just how awfully power corrupts and the capabilities of man. I'm just wondering, how do we balance all that writing with actually Conrad's own well-being or his own mental health? He suffered from depression. He had bouts of anxiety. Also felt very much an outsider in a privileged world. Well, if depression enables one to write a work like Heart of Darkness, I wish I suffered from a bit of depression because I wish I could produce a work of such brilliance. Frankly, I think that Conrad is very good at analysing states of depression and despair. It doesn't follow that texts themselves are necessarily marred by that fact. Indeed, it may be a strength that Conrad is such a good analyst. And I think it's very interesting in Heart of Darkness, he explores a wide range of different psychological states and shows that even Marlowe, who seems to be a pretty healthy man, is on occasions like an ostrich, concentrating on the next detail of, of navigation in order to shut out awareness of the hideous realities around. I think there's a lot of psychological truth in this. I think we all at some time have concentrated on the next detail of navigation rather than face up to some horror that's impending for us. Now, I find a lot of psychological truth in Conrad, and I don't see a man who's impaired by depression, <laughs> though it's generally true his work does feature death decay corruption rather than comedy and gaiety there's a lot of moral ambiguity Ida in this book and in terms of the central characters and in terms of the overall narration does that add do you think to the overall mystery of Heart of Darkness if we think about the characters, one thing that Cedric has just put, t- talked about, the number of African writers, people like Ngugi Watuango, who have celebrated the novel, but there, there has been some dissent, obviously. Chinua Chebe was uh, the, the great Nigerian writer who died last year, uh, wrote an essay uh, calling Conrad a, a bloody racist. And the, the thing that, that Chebe was worried about was he could see the argument that, that Conrad was talking about the argument arbitrariness of the ways in which Africans were represented by Europeans, that these are really just stories we tell ourselves. But what bothered him was that that Conrad didn't present us with an African character that had any kind of psychological realism about him. The only African character who actually speaks in the novel is the the man who fuels the engine on the boat. And uh, and the words he says are when they see uh, somebody creating trouble, he tells Marlowe, catch him, give him to us and, and and Marlowe says, well, what, what will you do if I, if I give him to you? He says, eat him, right? So th- this, is the, this is one of the problems that, uh, that people, t- you know, ha- are drawing attention to. What, what Achebe said was that Conrad does draw a, a cordon sanitaire between himself and the, the sort of psychological malaise of his character, his narrator. But he neglects to hint, however subtly, I'm quoting from Achebe now, or tentatively, at an alternative frame of reference by which we may judge the actions and opinions of his characters. It would not have been beyond Conrad's power to make that provision if he had thought it necessary. So 
Remember that in 1900, we already have the emergence since the 1880s of black publishing newspapers in West Africa, let's say. Elite educated Africans were producing newspapers in English. There were a number of uh, books published by Africans on pre-colonial institutions and African peoples and their values. Uh, writers like Joseph Casely Hay- Hayford in, in Ghana or John Mensah Sarba um, had produced works about their own people, the Fanti. Since the 18th century, there were black writers writing in English, you know, against the abolition or against slavery, for the abolition of slavery and so on. So the the worry is that that Conrad, he doesn't take that risk of engaging Africans, speaking to Africans and hearing back from them. Could he not have had a, an African character or some example of somebody? We, we only get the slightest hints that there may be and something else. Cedric, can I ask you, Heart of Darkness has influenced so many writers, filmmakers, dramatists of all sorts. And um, brilliant writers like John Akare, who've directly used Heart of Darkness in his works. You've introduced me to a very interesting writer, George Steiner, and The Portage, that novel, and how it directly takes from Heart of Darkness. Can you tell me about it? George Steiner's novella, The Portage de San Cristobal of A.H., is a story based on Heart of Darkness about how years after the Second World War, an ageing Adolf Hitler is found in the South American jungles by an Israeli team, and uh, the connection with Kurtz is made very strong. This fellow in the heart of the jungle has charismatic eloquence, and as he talks to his captors, he begins to trouble them because his arguments are so insidious they become divided amongst themselves. And this link between uh, Mr. Kurtz in Conrad's novella and Hitler is a very interesting one because Conrad seems to have been prophetic, and in uh, talking about a Mr. Kurtz who has charismatic eloquence and might have been uh, an extreme leader of a political party on the popular side, you feel that Conrad's envisaging the coming of someone like Hitler who might lead people astray through his great eloquence. When Orson Welles made a radio broadcast about Heart of Darkness, he explicitly made a link between Kurtz and Hitler. Uh, so I think that Heart of Darkness has been a very fecund text. It's had many offspring. The Steiner novella is one of his offspring, and of course the film Apocalypse Now as another of the offspring, and that in turn produced a film called Hearts of Darkness about the corruption of the team making the film Apocalypse Now. It suggests that some of the corruption described in Heart of Darkness was lingering on and was uh, infecting even the filmmakers. Another instance of the influence of this work is, of course, The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot, which has an epigraph from The Wasteland. And an interesting uh, descendant is The Third Man, a fine film based on a screenplay by... Graham Greene, and the link between Harry Lyme, who has uh, charismatic powers, and uh, Mr. Courts is made very clear because a character called Courts appears in the Green tale, which uh, produced The Third Man. Incidentally, the, the virtue of evil is a paradox that fascinated Conrad. You see it in Courts. There's something almost attractive about his intensity of corruption, and it was certainly there in the Orson Welles version of Harry Lyme in the great film The Third Man. And Cedric, if we look at Heart of Darkness as as a standalone, as compared to some of his other books like Nostromo, Lord Jim, The Secret Agent, do you think it's a very different breed of novel? Do you think it's his best book? I think it's his best book because it's so intense and compressed. Nostromo is also a great work on an epic scale, but if you want an, an intense compression of meaning, 
within a work, then Heart of Darkness is almost unbeatable. It goes on yielding its meanings in repeated readings. But there's this general factor to be pointed out. Conrad, naturally, given his upbringing, was inclined to be anti-imperialistic, anti-racist. It's there in his very first novel, Almeida's Folly. It's there in Ostromo, too. Again, again, the benevolent imperialist, who means well, makes things worse for himself and for the people he hopes to help. This applies to courts, it applies to Jim in Lord Jim, it applies to Gould, Gould in Nostromo, and it applies to Lingard in the Lingard trilogy, which begins with Almeida's Folly. There's a very consistent anti-imperialistic theme at work, and although Conrad thought that British imperialism was the best of a bad lot, he still thought the world would be better without any imperialism at all, and he makes that quite clear in his essay Autocracy and War, which appeared in 1905. Do you think if we move outside of its racist connotations, do you think this is one of the great books of literature? It's one of the very greatest books. It will endure for a long, long time. To those who find fault with it, I say, well, do better, and do better in Polish, just to be fair to Conrad. I would just say, I don't want to answer the question about whether it's a great book or not, because there are so many wonderful books. But if, if we're looking for books on Africa, Chinua Chebe's Things Fall Apart was an, a book writing back, trying to address um, what he saw as the silences in Conrad's novel and and giving an account of the colonial encounter from an African perspective. That was Professor Cedric Watts and Dr Ida Corley. Now, if you want to discover some more of Conrad's works, I'd suggest dropping down to your local library for either Nostromo, Lord Jim, The Secret Agent, or maybe Under Western Eyes. All stunning reads. OK, coming up next, has the workplace got better or worse? But first, let's break to a bit of kickback music. books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Okay, let's turn our gaze north and move into a very illuminating space and hear about social democracy in the Nordic states. 
Dr. Andrew Scott is Professor of Politics and Policy at Deakin University in Melbourne and he's an expert on Australian politics, policy and history. Well, Andrew's latest book, Northern Lights, the positive policy example of Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Norway, is a thought-provoking exploration on the nature of social policy, taxation, educational pathways, workspaces, gender equality and childcare models. Andrew persuasively outlines some of the lessons which English-speaking countries can learn from these socially progressive and enlightened Nordic nations. So here's the thing. In terms of income distribution, these countries are still much more equal than Australia, Britain, New Zealand and Canada, and interestingly, nearly twice as equal as the United States. What's even more revealing is that workforce participation rates are high in Nordic nations, but working hours remain within reasonable limits, enabling genuine work-life balance. Andrew's book is aimed at the general reader and refreshingly doesn't have all the mumbo-jumbo you get in some social policy books. Well, earlier in the week, I got a hold of Andrew and I asked him, do we need to rethink how we're living, working and relating? Do we need to move beyond the restraints of neoliberalism and embrace a bit of social democracy? Absolutely. I think we have to make the connections between the tax we pay and the services and benefits we receive. And I think there's a great variety in the West so-called Western world of approaches to taxation. And unfortunately, in many countries, most English-speaking countries, certainly in America, and to some extent in Australia too, people are getting resentful about having to pay tax and they're saying they're not getting things back in return. They're taking a very narrow and selfish view of it. But the countries with high tax bases, with high personal tax and other taxes, like the Nordic countries, have maintained support for that tax because... The services they provide, things like paid parental leave, employment assistance, security, investment in skills if you lose your job during your life, they see those benefits and they've had them long enough not to want to lose them. So they keep paying the taxes. And clearly, Andrew, neoliberalism is not putting the well-being of its citizens first. Sure it's not? No, it's not. Neoliberalism is about companies making profits. It's about a few having a great deal of wealth and increasing inequality. And many countries in the world now, in the Western world, are seeing the damage that inequality does, not just to those who suffer the most, but to the whole society because of the loss of trust and cohesion and uh, regard for others. Now, can you talk me through the Swedish welfare state? Because there are ideas on parental leave. Fathers can get up to two months minimum uh, leave over the 16 months that a family is entitled to. They look at the emotional development of children and they look at the ideas that all children deserve respect and dignity. When we bring that into a broad perspective and you look at the rate of women in the workforce in Sweden, and I've worked in Sweden, it really is a tremendous society. It is. It makes a huge difference in that if a father does not take the minimum two months paid parental leave, then the family loses that part of the 16 months paid parental leave in Sweden. So it's a powerful financial incentive for fathers to be more involved in the raising of children. And uh, of course, some people think that's government going too far, trying to reconstruct gender roles, but it seems to bring many benefits because children do better when their fathers are more involved. Obviously, it's better for women in reducing some of the inequalities which uh, affect their lives because in most countries, women are still seen as having to take the overwhelming share of parenting responsibilities. And you show that 80% of single parents return to the workforce 
So that really says it all, doesn't it? Well, it's, a, it's an amazing statistic when you consider that the approach in Sweden is to support people, not to punish them. And the attitude towards single parents in many countries is to be judgmental towards them, to be harsh towards them, to deny them support. When you actually provide support, including paid parental leave of long duration, as Sweden does, you get a much higher workforce participation rate. So that, that demolishes the neoliberal idea that giving government support to people will just mean that they take the money and then won't do anything productive. Can you talk to me a little bit about Norway and their ideas on resource tax? Obviously, Norway is sitting on the North Sea and they've made a hell of a lot of money out of it. But they've also distributed the money very fairly through their taxation system, haven't they? Yes, well, because of the money they've raised, uh, I mean, they took a very different approach to what Britain did. I mean, North Sea oil was found to the benefit of both Britain and Norway in the late 1960s. Britain, of course, took the money and that helped fuel its tax cuts policy in the Thatcher years particularly. And Norway instead ensured that the international oil companies paid a, a higher rate of tax and also that much of that revenue was kept for the nation so they can keep doing things like funding free university education. I don't know your situation in Ireland with university education funding at the moment, but certainly in Australia and most countries, universities have become very short of public funding, not so in Norway. Do you think the Lutheran influence has anything to do with how they've shaped their social policies? Or do you think I'm stretching it a bit there? It's a really interesting question that, I mean, Lutheranism is a very different religion from Catholicism. And we have a strong Irish Catholic and Roman Catholic influence in Australia generally, an important part of our history. I've got my own Irish ancestors, in fact, and have been to Dublin and uh, to County Clare, where my great-grandmother came from. But the Lutheran religion seems not to involve itself so much in public policy matters as the Catholic Church does and as Orthodox Christian churches do as well. So that means that there's less opposition coming from a powerful conservative religious element in society, if you like, to things like children's rights and women's rights. And their environmental track record is top class and they certainly put Europe to shame, don't they? (laughs) Well, yes, Australia's not doing too well on the international environmental record at the moment with our current government. That's certainly the case. They repealed the short-lived carbon tax that uh, Australia introduced. And you would have thought in, in the debate in Australia that we were leading the world by having a carbon tax, but the Nordic countries have had them since the early 1990s and Germany since the late 1990s. And most of Europe and Britain have, have accepted the science of climate change, global warming, and have taken action. Unfortunately, the politics of Australia at the moment are that the incumbent government has exploited fears about tax, uh, has been very selective about the scientific evidence, and uh, Australia is frankly quite embarrassing. As Richard Flanagan said when he accepted the Booker Prize, it's very embarrassing to be an Australian on the international stage when it comes to environmental issues. The Norwegians have done a lot. I mean, for many decades, in fact, their former female Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland led a World Commission on Sustainable Development and uh, they have in their sovereign wealth fund a policy of not investing in environmentally damaging activities. One of the things that really jumps out from your book is the Nordic idea to work-life balance and not just in terms of the hours a day that employees are working, also looking at workplace design and quality work systems. It's very impressive, isn't it? 
It is, and I think you know, it's part of. Of course, you're more, you're more likely to want to go to work and to return to work after a period of parental leave or whatever if uh, work is more enjoyable. And the Nordic approach has been not to see work as something you put up with in order to get enough money to have a life outside work, but rather as part of the process of fulfilling your creative impulses and so on. And so there's been much more emphasis on ideas of industrial democracy in the Nordic countries. And innovations like uh, Volvo changing the, the Ford assembly line approach to making cars and instead getting teams of workers collaborating together and each of them gaining a sense of how the overall product was produced. So these are ideas that can be taken up elsewhere. I suppose, Andrew, it comes down to courage, vision and leadership when you think about it. And if you look at countries like Denmark or if you look at Finland, for example, and their ideas on vocational training, it really challenges any taxpayer, certainly for me living in Ireland, on what the hell we're doing. Yeah, I think Ireland, perhaps even more so than Australia, has underutilised potential with its labour force participation. And that includes, we've mentioned the high rate of female participation in the Nordic countries, but also People over the age of 50 don't leave the workforce in Denmark, for example, to the same extent as elsewhere because certainly they've been affected by job losses in areas like shipbuilding, manufacturing and so on. But the policy in Denmark is for employment security so you can you make a real effort to retrain those workers. And you also do things, as they've done in one part of Denmark, that when a, a large shipyard closed, they re-employed many of the workers in a renewable energy hub based in that same premises, which is the kind of thing I think um, all countries need to do. I have spent a serious amount of time both working and living in Scandinavia. And I know I suffer a little bit from Nordic hero worship. But I'm wondering, what would you say to your critics who say that you cannot compare what they're doing to our economic environments and that we are in operating in different systems under different circumstances? And it's not that you can impose one structure over another and sort out all the problems. What do you say to that? Yeah, there's some truth in that. But um, we also hear a lot that we live in an age of globalisation and that uh, individual nation-states can't do things the way they used to do because the world is going a certain direction. Now, if that's true, then the other statement that um, you can't learn from any other nation-states can't be true. And the truth is somewhere in between. Individual nation-states can and do learn from each other. I mean, the ombudsman is something that started in the Nordic countries. It's Norse, an old Norse word meaning representative or, or commissioner, which has gone around the world to 150 countries or so. The role of paid parental leave has come from Sweden in 1974, and it's very widespread now, paternity leave included. Similarly, the, some of the other things that I've written about in the book, I believe, can be learned from. And I don't mean exported, I don't mean transplanted, but I do mean studied uh, in an intelligent way and with an eye to looking at what the home country that's looking at those policies can learn that are relevant for its uh, progress. So adapt it, if you will. Is that what you're trying to say? Absolutely. Adaptation. I mean, this is how the world works. Policy learning does go on and countries do learn things from each other. And that's... uh, something that should happen more rather than less now we live in a more globalised world. Now, Andrew, a walk around Copenhagen or Oslo or maybe Malmö or Gothenburg, you do notice there are some some racial tensions in these cities in the northern countries. Not as much a a problem I found in Helsinki, but certainly in Copenhagen and, and in Oslo and in some of the southern cities in Sweden, 
there are serious problems with integration. So why are they getting that so wrong and everything else so right? Well, I think those tensions exist through most of Europe uh, as Europe becomes more multicultural. And, well, the first point to make is that Malmo is certainly a large industrial city in southern Sweden, which does have an obvious concentration of immigrants in particular areas. One of the impressive things that's been done there is the Commission for a Socially Sustainable Malmo, which has brought together a lot of stakeholders, including social work experts from the university, as well as trade unions and others, and really designed some good policies for integration. And that's now being taken to a national level under the new Social Democrat-led government in Sweden as of late last year. So I see plenty of signs that, yes, there are tensions, but there are good policies to tackle them. And the other thing to note, of course, is that the image certainly we've had in Australia of Sweden has been very influenced by, well, ABBA was bigger in Australia than anywhere else in the world, I think. The image of Swedes as being all monocultural, blonde Lutherans is not accurate when 16% of Swedes are now born overseas. So it's become a very multicultural country fairly quickly. And the interesting thing about that is that while there's been some tensions it hasn't led to a collapse of support for universal welfare provision. People aren't saying that they won't pay tax anymore if it goes to people who are not like themselves. That's interesting. It's very revealing, isn't it? It sort of debunks one of the arguments that people on the right often said that you know Sweden and any country that had universal welfare and high taxes and was egalitarian only did so if it was monocultural. But Sweden's no longer monocultural and it still has high taxes and universal welfare provision. So are the workers of the world, are we paying the price now? As in the, in the worlds of America, Australia, Britain, Ireland, Scotland. Do you think we're playing the price of neo-capitalism and their, its policies now that we're suffering from? You see a lot of mental health problems in the workplace, very stressed out employees. You see marriages breaking up because either partner are so overstretched in the workplace that they don't have a lot of time in their family lives. So do you think we're really paying 